Back in 1975, there was a movie based on Rudyard Kipling's novel, The Man Who Would Be King. It was the story of two Englishmen, Daniel Dravitt and Peachy Tolliver Conahan, played by Sean Connery and Michael Caine. They were con men who had become a disgrace to their country while serving in India, but rather than face the punishment for their crimes, they escaped, escaped and fled to a mystical country called Kafiristan. Their goal was to become kings, loot the country of all their wealth, and return home. They never dreamed what would eventually happen. Daniel, played by Sean Connery, was shot with an arrow, but the arrow stuck in his bandolier. And when he pulled the arrow out with no blood on it, all the people bowed down and they proclaimed him a god, and they made him their king. You see, kingship and godhood was determined by how tough he was and the fact that he did not bleed. At the close of the movie, Peachy, played by Michael Caine, decides he doesn't want this life. He wants to take some of the loot and head back home. But Daniel, played by Sean Connery, decides he likes this idea of being a king and a god, and he wants to marry one of the native women and stay there. And so they talk, he talks Daniel into staying for that wedding. Well, as fate would have it, at the wedding, the bride bites the king, Sean Connery, on the cheek, and he bleeds. And instantly, all the people know he is no God, and they don't want him to be their king. He's a phony. The movie ends with Daniel, the king, falling to his death in a deep canyon below, and Daniel, Peachy, is hung, Peachy is hung between two trees and left for dead. What a contrast to the story we find in John chapter 12, our text today. In this passage, we find Jesus, a man who did not want an earthly kingdom, a man who wasn't interested in earthly possessions, but rather in eternal possibilities. He wasn't interested in people's loot that he could steal. He was interested in people's lives that he could save. Now, in Kipling's story, when the king was seen bleeding, he was proven to be a fraud. He was no king and certainly no God. On Calvary, when Jesus was crucified on the cross and blood was shed by thorns and spikes and a spear, a Roman soldier standing nearby said, truly, this man was the son of God. The historical setting of our passage is during the last week of our Lord's life. It's called Holy Week. And during these final days, Jesus spends time preparing his disciples for what is to come. In verse 1 of chapter 12, John tells us it was six days before the Passover. Jesus had returned to Bethany, the home of Simon, Mark tells us in Mark 14, verse 3. This is his first time back since he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he had to leave then because the Jews wanted to kill him. He was on his way to the Passover celebration, an annual reminder of the Exodus event when God delivered his people from bondage. Remember the ten plagues and the final plague being the plague of the death of the firstborn? But every family that had blood, the blood of a lamb over the doorpost was saved. Every year the Jews were to commemorate that and celebrate the deliverance and the salvation of the Lord. Before Jesus gets to Jerusalem for that celebration, 
He stops at Bethany to spend some time with his very dear friends. And we pick up the story in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? John says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who he was about to betray, uh, he, who, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You may be seated, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The first thing we notice in our text is a touching encounter, verses 1 to 3. This dinner has been given in Jesus' honor, and Martha, as always, is the one who's serving everyone. But Simon is there. He was previously a leper, but Jesus had healed him. Lazarus was there. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And everybody was expressing their love and gratitude to Jesus. They were all sharing about how much they loved Jesus and how much they appreciated what he had done for them. And it was this amazing evening. In the midst of all of that, Mary got up and went to get a very expensive bottle of perfume. You say, how expensive was it? Worth 300 days' wages. Think for a moment of what your income is and what 300 days of your annual income would be. It'd be a pretty serious sum. And now think of giving a gift of that size to anyone. Pretty amazing gift. And she broke it open and she poured it on him. And John says she wiped his feet with her hair in an act of humility and worship. She loved the Lord and as a spontaneous expression of her love, she gave something very valuable and precious to him. Have you ever done that? In a moment of being overwhelmed with what Jesus has done for you you, 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 you gave the best you possibly could give to him. 
Mary did. She loved the Lord. She got caught up in the middle of all that and she couldn't give him enough. Next we see a tasteless excuse. In verses 4 to 8, Judas immediately objected. Are you out of your mind? You're wasting a ton of money here. When you show your love for Jesus, someone will always object. Someone will always say it's too much. But my question is, can we ever really go overboard or do too much to show our love for Jesus? Judas proved his lack of love by his obsession with something else other than the Lord. Now, his excuse sounded spiritual. Notice he said, that money should have been given to the poor. And I'm glad John points out he couldn't have cared less about the poor. Verse 6 says he was an embezzler. He would regularly take money out of the money bag to serve his own personal business. In fact, Bible scholars tell us that he was so greedy for money, he stole money from the disciples' money bag on a regular basis to pay for some property outside the city of Jerusalem in anticipation of Jesus establishing an earthly political kingdom. How'd that work out for him? He eventually betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He, he thought to himself, well, if that's not going to happen, I might as well make some money on this deal on the way out. Judas represents that group of people, the what's in it for me crowd. And I will tell you that will never work out well. Anything that's more important to you than Jesus is wrong, no matter how good it may appear to be. So Judas ruins this wonderful evening with his greed. And Jesus doesn't let it go. He answers Judas in verses 7 and 8. He says, leave her alone. In fact, other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus told him, wherever this gospel is preached, people are going to talk about what she's done tonight forever. And it's true. We're doing it here this morning. And he added in verse 8, the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus was not teaching you shouldn't help the poor. He was simply saying you need to know what your priorities ought to be. And he has to always be number one. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. The next thing John shows us is a tactical elimination, verses 9 and 11. He tells us the Jesus watchers are back. Now, as many as one million Jews had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And when the word gets out that Jesus is there, this, this crowd of people want to want to come and see him, and they, they also want to see Lazarus, verse 9 tells us, because he'd been raised from the dead. I mean, can you imagine if you went home from church today and on the six o'clock news they they told the story of someone down in Waco that had been raised from the dead, and uh, they were going to be coming to, uh, to Walmart on Matlock in Debbie Lane at 6 o'clock tonight. And if you'd like to see these people and see this person, hear this story, can you imagine the crowd that would show up? They wanted to see. Now, they couldn't have cared less about who Jesus was. They just wanted to see Jesus do something else. I mean, you never know. So the decision was made by the religious authorities, John tells us in verse 10, to get rid of the evidence. 
Now, as unbelievable as this may appear to you, it's absolutely true. The, the religious people who represent God want to kill someone who God's son has raised from the dead. Get rid of the evidence. The chief priests were Sadducees. Now, in case you've ever wondered about how, what's the difference between the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see? And the Pharisees were all legalists. They were all about keeping the letter of the law, and they weren't fair, I see. If you remember that, you'll always understand them. Well, the Sadducees didn't, didn't believe in resurrection, so here's a guy who's walking around who's risen from the dead. We've got to kill him. He's, he ruins our theology. And John tells us in verse 19, the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger, more, more people. The more people that saw Jesus and saw Lazarus, the crowds got bigger and bigger. And that leads us to number four, a triumphal entry. Verse 12, caught up in all the emotion of the events, a huge crowd begins to bring palm branches and lays them on the road to get ready for Jesus to, to enter Jerusalem. And remember, over one million people are there. A number of our Crossroads family have been in the, the city of Jerusalem now. I, I don't know where you'd put 100,000 people, much less a million the place was crawling with people. There was probably hardly any, any room to move whatsoever. But they bring palm branches. Now, by the way, palm branches were the sign of a conqueror. They were a, a symbol of strength. They wanted to make Jesus king. They, they, they wanted him not to be a spiritual king, but a political one. So how do you know that? Well, in verse 13, they shout, Hosanna which literally means save now. They were literally saying, save us from Rome. And they were all cheering it and chanting it. They wanted Jesus to save them from the slavery of Rome. Now, I want to make sure you don't miss this. All of these people have come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. To commemorate and celebrate the fact that God had delivered his people from bondage in Egypt, and, and he'd done it with that final plague, the death of the firstborn, blood over the home, all that stuff. They were, they were coming to commemorate it and celebrate it. And on the very day that they had to pick their Passover lamb for that annual celebration, here comes the Lamb of God who John the Baptist said takes away the sins of the world. And they missed it. Like scholars tell us that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, would, would literally have passed by the sheep gate. Say, why is that important? A number of our people have been there as well. Well, that's where all the lambs would have been washed and prepared for sacrifice. He would have gone right by there while they were busy doing that. Matthew gives us another insight. He said they called him the son of David. Why is that significant? Well, that tells us that some of the people in the crowd, not all of them, but some of them knew that Jesus had the messianic right to be king. But they were so caught up in the moment, they didn't know, they didn't notice that Jesus was riding on the, the foal of a donkey. That had been prophesied, Zechariah 9, verse 9, and, and riding on a donkey was a symbol of humility. It was a symbol of, of peace, not a conquering king. So what was it a picture of? Who Jesus really was. 
He told his disciples one time in Matthew 20, 28, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. How sad that we have to tell so many modern-day contemporary followers of Christ that it's not all about you. It's not all about you being served and and what's in it for me. No, no, the, the Lord you claim to serve said, I didn't come to be served by anybody. I want to serve everybody. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. And that's what he would do by the end of the week. On Passover, he would be crucified and give his life for all. The Lamb of God would be slain on the very day when lambs were slain in commemoration of the Passover, Israel's deliverance from Egypt. They'd done it for years. You'd think they would have connected the dots. They didn't. The crowd in John chapter 12, verse 13, who hailed Jesus as the king of Israel, said to Pilate a few days later, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. What a lie. They hated Caesar. But they got caught up in the moment of the mob. And friend, listen, when you get caught up in the moment of a mob, you'll do things you never dreamed you'd do, and you'll say things you never dreamed you'd say. Well, what happened to these people? How could they turn so quickly? Well, here was the problem. Jesus was king for a day, not for a lifetime. They weren't interested in a lifetime commitment. They weren't interested in holiness or obedience or service or sacrifice. They wanted a king of convenience. They want a a king who can solve the immediate problem and then just get out of the way. We'll take it from here. Sound familiar? They weren't interested in a Lord who demanded daily denial or discipline or devotion or dedication. They only wanted Jesus to be king for a day. Or maybe just king for one hour on Sunday. One day a week. The rest of the week, we got this. Now, the fact of the matter is, no one's got this without Jesus. Finally, we notice a tearful epilogue. Now, in John's gospel, you won't won't get this picture. John does say in verse 16, his disciples didn't understand what was happening until he was glorified. Until it was all said and done, the, the crucifixion, the, the, the cross, the, 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 the tomb, uh, the resurrection, then it all started to make sense, but they didn't get it at the time. In fact, in verse 27, he, he said to them, you know, in case you're thinking that, 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 that my coming death is a result of a plan gone wrong, no, 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 you, you need to know, that's why I came. I came for this. They wanted to prevent it. They didn't want it to happen. They wanted him to stay there and, you know, let's, yeah, let's have a kingdom here on earth. He said, no, you don't understand. My way is the way of the cross. It was God's plan from the beginning. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, a lot of people read that passage where it talks about Jesus' humility and, and all that, and they miss that little part where it says, he became obedient even unto death on a cross. Obedient to who? God. 
He submitted himself to what God wanted done in his life. See, it was God's plan from the very beginning of the world to save you and save me and, and whosoever would call upon the name of Christ. That was his plan. And Jesus submitted to God's plan. He said, not my will, but your will be done. Remember that? How different from so many of us today who say, God, here's my will and I want you to bless it. I understand what you'd like me to do, but this is what I really need you to do, and I need your blessing on that. No, it was God's plan from the beginning. Unlike the Rudyard Kipling story that made for a good movie, Jesus was never interested in an earthly kingdom or what he could take from others. He came as a servant, he came as a savior. And we really don't see that in John's gospel. If you want the real perspective of what happened at the triumphal entry, you have to go to the gospel of Luke. You see, Luke tells us a side of the story that, that others didn't really tell. That's the reason why you have four gospels. It's like different views of the same events. And Luke shows us the heart of Jesus in a way that others didn't show. You say, what are you talking about? Well, most churches who celebrate the triumphal entry, it's a happy celebration. It's, it's, it's wonderful, and sometimes they'll have children with palm branches come down, and they'll, they'll clap and cheer, and all the music's positive, and, and people say, this is awesome, and they leave, and they miss, they, they, they miss the whole point. You see, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, that when Jesus actually came down the Mount of Olives, that winding road that, that goes down from the Mount of Olives, when he saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept. He wept. Don't miss this. The crowd was rejoicing, but Jesus was weeping. By the way, this is only the second time we have any record of Jesus ever weeping. The first time was when Lazarus had died, John 11, verse 35. Now, he wasn't weeping over the fact that his friend had died. In fact, he stayed where he was four days. He didn't even come immediately. And remember, Mary and Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus wasn't concerned about that. Why? He knew he, death had no power over him. He could raise him from the dead. He wasn't crying because his friend had died. He knew what he was about to do. You know why he wept? He wept over the devastation and the destruction of sin and what it's done to this world he created and what it's done to the people that he loves more than anything else he ever created. You and me. He wept. The word translated wept here is the strongest word in the Greek language for weeping. It means to wail. It means to, to, to weep out loud. These aren't those quiet tears where you just kind of blink your eyes and, and, and no one really knows you were crying or you can just put your hand up and wipe it away real quick and no one really knows. No, it's not that at all. This was agonizing, sobbing, unrestrained weeping. Have you ever wept like that? I have one time. The morning of June 29, 2016, 
I got a phone call from Wally Rendell at 6.56 in the morning telling me that Wayne Smith had died. I've never wept like that. And when it says that Jesus was weeping and wailing, his heart was broken. His heart was crushed. Listen to the words he said. Luke gives them to us, verses 42 to 44. And by the way, I've been on that road. Some of our crossroads people have been on that same road. If, if it ever gets possible to make a trip to Holy Land, I believe it will be. You ought to go. You walk on that road. There's asphalt now, but it would have been dirt and some rocks and some weeds, but, 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 it, but it weaves back and forth from the top of the Mount of Olives. And there, there's a place when you, when you come around, all of a sudden you see the city of Jerusalem. And that's where he began to weep. And that's where Luke says, he said this, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept because it had destroyed itself. I think he's weeping over America this morning. I can't speak for other nations, but I, I'm pretty sure he's weeping over what's happening in America. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, No matter where Jesus looked, he found a case for weeping. If he looked back, he saw how the nation had wasted its opportunities and being ignorant of their time of visitation. Sound familiar? If he looked within, he saw spiritual ignorance and blindness in the hearts of the people. They should have known who he was. For God had given them his word and sent messengers to prepare the way. If he looked around, he saw religious activity that accomplished very little. The temple had become a den of thieves. The religious leaders were out to kill him. And as he looked ahead, he saw the terrible judgment that was coming to the nation, the city, and the temple. In AD 70, the Romans would come, and after a siege of 143 days, they would kill 600,000 Jews, take thousands more captive, and then destroy the temple and the city. Why did all this happen? Because the people did not know that God had visited them. They missed him. Remember the parable of the minas where Jesus told the, the story about how the people said of the master, we do not want this man to rule over us. Remember that? 
That's what they were saying. When Friday came and they cried for his death, kill him, crucify him. Most people don't know that when Jesus descended down the Mount of Olives, he was weeping uncontrollably. John tells us in John chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So the question today on Palm Sunday 2021 is not, how did those people miss Jesus? The question is, how do we miss him? Let's pray.